Alright everyone, welcome back. Episode number 9 of the Solve for Why vlogcast. And today was a really interesting week. I'm really excited. There's a lot of talking points on the docket. But first and foremost, there is an Academy seat giveaway. I can't believe we still have money. <laughs> well, it's debatable if we do or not. How come you don't look me in the eye when you hit them with the intro? Is this, is this kind of like a little bit of your O face? Like you kind of like look a little off to the left, like you're just in it, you know? I, I'm zoning in. This is a long podcast. I'm going to look at you for an hour straight. Yeah. And you still want me to look at you for the first 10 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> I get it. It's an intimate moment with the audience. Yeah, it's uh, me and the audience. Right, man. right. I understand. Yeah, no, we, we are. Yeah, we're giving it away, man. So it's only one seat. The, the rules is two seats because it's for one of each academy. <laughs> so the rules are you're going to submit a two minute video uh, or at least capped at two minutes on Twitter. And it's about the most impactful moment of your poker career or yeah. something of that wording. Any, any way that you like to phrase it. We've gotten some really good submissions so far. Some people from New Jersey that want to play me heads up now. Some people uh, from other places. What so far, actually, let's not talk about which one is our favorites because we don't want to give it away. Right. Yeah, no, uh, it, the submissions have been great. Uh, one of them did a uh, Joe Ingram impersonation that was just really good. <laughs> it may or may not be our favorite so far. Good luck to all the current contestants. But if you want to top that submission, they still have some time. How much time do they have? Oh, man. Uh, deadline is August 15th, so we're still looking at like three weeks. Yeah. Or August 18th, something like that. Three or four weeks. Yeah, so we encourage you all to just like throw it in there. And I, I'm, having, I'm having a blast with it. We've had some really good submissions. I actually went back and reviewed like Marley's submission and see like how that all went. And it was pretty fun. It's good to see how people have transitioned from that moment till now. So two seats, one for the Academy MTT, one for the Academy Cash, which will be held in Las Vegas, Nevada at the new Google headquarters. <laughs> Software Y Academy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that is uh, what's going on now. Secondly, you played Poker Go this week, two sessions. And I want to talk a little bit about one of the topics that actually uh, kind of bothered me in a way, or like at least brought up a discussion that I think needs to be had in poker. Right. Okay. So you did an interview. Right with yeah. Brent Hanks, yep. and one of like the joking, running jokes or things that are said is that you don't win on television. Sure, right. But when they bring that up to you, right, isn't that like some sort of like an like bring, attempting to take a shot at your ego? Because, for example, you have like a certain level of expectation to win on television simply because you're an instructor of an academy or a high-stakes poker player, you've been playing for 16 years, yeah. and now they're like, oh, haha, you don't win, you don't win. Does, does that bother your ego, or is that something that is a bigger conversation as a whole in terms of ego and poker? That's complex. Um, it would bother me if it wasn't Brent. Mm -hmm. We're very good friends, and I know that he knows that he has a lot of leeway to have fun with me. Yeah, um, but it's been said before by like yeah. Ryan Feldman or, or whoever, whatever TV show you're on. It's been a, a theme of, of the show. Yeah, not a theme, but uh, no, like a I understand. Talking I understand. Yeah. Look, I get it. Like we're expected to have thicker skin as pros than anybody else in the in the game. It's kind of uh, 
hazard of the, the, the job, right? Um, it doesn't bother me, to be quite frank, because I understand the grand scheme of things. It bothers me in the sense that it portrays me a certain way. Mm -hmm. So I don't really give a shit if, if you put my graph on a screen. I don't really care if we're talking about being transparent. Right. Uh, what bothers me is when you feed the trolls and like when this narrative begins to develop that the implication behind me not winning on TV is that I'm not good. Right. And I think Brent doesn't mean that, or I know Brent doesn't mean course, that. Of course. But that doesn't mean that it's not taken a certain way. Uh, and I also think that like it kind of does feed into the narrative that we have to further this dog and pony show in order for televised poker to be interesting. Yeah. Which, you know, if you were on Twitter yesterday, I, uh, I went a little hard on. Well, that's we'll definitely get to that topic. So let's let's expand a little bit on that because I think it not only applies to you, but it just like applies to like the general ego and poker yeah. uh, marriage, yeah, yeah. which I think is which I think is a, a a big conversation and something that you've like worked a lot on and has worked a lot on me. Like this level of expectation of you're supposed to win or you're entitled to win, mm -hmm. or if somebody says something negative about your game, it brings you down. Why is that? Why is there such a, a strong connection to that? Like, it even happens to me. Like I had, I lost a couple tournaments and I'm like, oh man, like I can't believe this is happening or, yeah. or et cetera. If I lose a session uh, or if I lose even in the worst scenarios, you lose a hand to a player that you don't, that you feel you are better than, yeah. and it brings you down a notch. Why is that so, such a big deal? So I think there's a whole lot to unpack here. Uh, and I guess I'll start with a top-down approach. Um, first, I think like we can examine expectation. And just in that sheer capacity, our mind doesn't work in a way that actually conceptualizes variance. So we can think probabilistically as much as we want, and we can say how improbable it is uh, to lose aces versus kings, for mm -hmm. example, right? right? But you're still going to lose 20% of the time. One in five times, you're just not going to win that hand. Right. And when it happens, we've, we've kind of made our mind up that it's supposed to be a rare occurrence. Yeah. And we equate rare to never, right? 20% is a lot. Yeah. You know, it's like if, if you were told by your anesthesiologist that 20% of the time you wouldn't wake up, you would never get the sturgeon. Right, I've heard you say that. Right? About a dog. Yeah, <laughs> of, of course. And even 5%, right? It's right. like, even if they say like, oh, well, it barely ever happens. Only 5% of people don't wake up from anesthesia. It's like, that's a lot of people. Yeah. That is a margin of error that we cannot accept. Like, right. there's just no way that would be above board, right? So we just don't really think in ways that comprehend or, I guess, uh, delineate between our expectations and our emotions. And that kind of digs into the next layer where you talk about the entitlement factor. Um, you work really hard at your craft and you do your damnedest to understand both big picture and, and small scale, what your expectation is, uh, where you're making money, where your edges lie, how great that edge is, et cetera. Mm. But again, this requires a level of probabilistic thinking and now an emotional intelligence that separates us from our monkey brain that just doesn't get what 65, 35 means, right? right? So, you know, it's, it, the, the problem is the measurables are rather intangible. So I can look at that poker go lineup and just say like, I'm winning a lot in these games, like un, unquestionably so. 
Right. But it doesn't take into account a lot of other factors, right? It doesn't take into account the adjustments that the lineup is going to make because they're te- on TV, right? So For sure. maybe somebody is a big losing player in this lineup in general, but because they're on TV and they're on a short roll and somebody's invested and they're able to watch, they're way tighter than they otherwise would be, right? right, right? So sense. now they might be losing less. Yeah. Um, it doesn't take into consideration uh environmental dynamics like suddenly we showed up to play 25 50 game where your expectation is like plus or minus 5k and now all of a sudden like there's a 400 straddle on consistently now you know we can anticipate that stuff happening and we can prepare for it as best we can but you know suddenly now maybe you need like 100k exposure to this game instead of 25k sure sure. and there's a bigger financial pressure that all preys upon your emotional responses and no matter how much you train it or try to train out of it you're still human at the end of the day and you're still going to come victim. You're, you're going to be victimized by your reptilian brain that just responds to negative events in a negative way. And it's hard for that not to happen, especially if they pile up. So it's easy to take one on the chin, get sucked out on, lose a pot that you feel you were entitled to win and kind of move past it. But it's difficult to lose three or four of those pots in a row and now suddenly be stuck a number that you don't necessarily know that you can get back in that game. So let's talk about characters in poker. It seems like you've been pushing this like call to action of not needing characters, not needing table talk, needing just higher uh, quality commentators to continue to push the kind of like the poker's uh, poker's popularity kind of, right? Uh, so last decade we'd had we had players like Sammy Farha. For some reason, Sammy Farha is like the focal point of all these conversations, the right? So Sammy Farha, we had uh, pretty much just a, a mantra, a, a, an entire lineup of characters: the mouth that we saw yesterday on on Poker Go, uh, and just a lot of characters that like really encapsulated the dream of playing poker at the time, or at least playing with them uh, was the dream. However, looking back at last decade, a lot of the players that I looked up to didn't really talk. Like when I think about Durr, like I don't really remember many words being said. I don't remember many words from Phil Ivey being said, Patrick Antonius, which were like the biggest gamblers on the show, the ones that pulled off the biggest moves. But then there were still characters like Phil Hellmuth. There was still characters like The Mouth. There was Daniel Negreanu, which is everybody's fan favorite. Uh, So it's interesting that your take is that we don't need the characters? That's not my take. Okay. I'm all for character development. I've been saying that since we started Software Y and maybe even before. I think it's imperative to the growth of poker mm-hmm. for us to de- develop uh, stars, right? And I think that by and large, that's a combination of being necessitated through the person themselves as well as outside media sources. Now, currently, both of those things are lacking in poker. Yeah. And it's only getting worse. So it's very problematic. We don't have the same resources that most other wide-scale platforms have. So I compare it most to golf, uh, tennis, and NASCAR. The barrier of entry to all three of those is relatively great for the, for the layman. And the same holds true for poker. Very few people are ever going to drive on a racetrack. Very few people are ever going to golf at Pebble. And very few people are ever going to get to play tennis on a clay court. The, the economical barriers are just great, right? It's expensive to do all of these things. Well, the same holds true for poker. You know, you're going to get to play 
penny stakes with your friends, but you're never going to know what it is to be in, in a, an elite competitive environment the way that we see on TV or is glorified on is TV. Is that fair to say, though? Like, someone can sit with you if they choose to. It's not like they can't play with LeBron James in a, in a basketball game like in the NBA, well, but in this arena... They can just have a hundred k. But that's not that's not true. Money can buy you all of these things. That's why I'm saying the barrier of entry is economical, right? If you spend enough money, you can go drive on a racetrack. If you spend yeah, enough money, you play. can golf at Pebble. Mm, okay, maybe maybe that's right? true. But they can't play in the NBA. They can't play in the NBA, but they can pay a hundred thousand dollars to go to fantasy camp and right. and play five on five with LeBron. Right, right, right. right? So that it's like sense. you you get the simulation. Yeah, and and it's the same thing in poker. Like, none of these guys are going to be at a Poker Masters final table, right. but they can play the event. Right, right, right. You know, so it's, it's, it's very similar in nature. And the difference is that those three arenas, in my opinion, have kind of set the stage for character development and sport development in a way that is very calculated. Mm -hmm. So I think that they have a very uniform approach, right? You just won't watch golf on TV that isn't uh, broadcast in a very specific way. The commentary will, will be done in a certain fashion. The characters will be displayed in a certain way. Uh, and all of the allure to Tiger or Mickelson or whatever is mostly being done through media coverage. Now, granted, it's, it's maybe 100 times larger than poker. Yeah. And NASCAR might be 1,000 or even 10,000 times larger than poker, whatever. But the whole point is that they don't go back and forth between publications as to what's best for the everyman, right? And I think that that's the hard divide that we're currently seeing right now. You'll see products that are stripped down to desperately wanting people to get hammered on air and prop bet and, you know, shout obscenities at one another and encourage antics like what we see out of Randall. And then you'll see coverage like the Poker Masters where it's elite players who are kind of uh, at, at the top of their game but yeah, they're, they're studied, they're thoughtful, they're not going to discuss strategy at the table. So the whole crux of this that it boils down to uh, is not character development. I absolutely think that's a must. Right. That just needs to be done through interviews. That needs to be done through highlighting players. Like what Bonomo and Fedor and a handful of others have achieved in the last five years is getting swept under the rug compared to what the generation before it did, right? When Negreanu took over the number one money spot, no, everybody, everybody who ever followed poker knew that. Yeah. I think that there's a vast majority of the casual poker fan who has no idea Justin Bonomo is the number one poker or, or tournament player in the world. So what you're saying is, last decade, the characters that were on top of the game were ones that kind of made themselves characters and with some help of media. But like... We all knew Daniel Negreanu. We all knew Phil Hamu. They, they were just like big characters. This generation's characters, the best players, Stephen Chidwick, you know, Petrangelo's of the world, Bonimo, they're not talkers. They're very just like stoic players that need help from media to get their story, to get what's important to them. You're to dismissing how much media help there was to begin with. The whole reason mm -hmm. there's no star from this, this generation is because there's no sponsorship money, right? We, we eliminated millions and millions of dollars of sponsorship that threw themselves behind the, Antonis, uh, the Patrick Antoniuses, the right. Ivies, the Negranus, the Helmuths, the Mouth, whatever, right? The fact that they talked 
is, is just an added bonus in some regard. There were plenty of people on that list that you named that never spoke a word. Also, but I think that it's a different. I think that it's a different landscape now. Like so, for sure. but the reason is I think it's a different landscape in not only poker. Like if you want to have a a big following, like now it's like if you want to have a big following, if you want to develop your character, if if you want people to understand who you are. You have to develop that yourself. Like that even that even happens like in the record industry now. Like like people love Cardi B because Cardi B gets on on her Instagram and starts like interacting with her fans. I don't, you know, people like the vloggers in poker because they interact with them. Sure. They just at bottom mode, nobody knows about him because he does he's not an interactive person. But he's also not highlighted, right? Yes, I agree that the interaction is massive, but mm -hmm. that happens at the NBA level, the MLB level, all these other things too, right? That's what, that's what social media platforms are for. And it's not that these guys are lacking to interact with the common folk, mm -hmm. right? It's that the common folk don't care to interact with them. And the biggest reason for that is because we don't give them a proper platform, right? They're just a bunch of faceless, nameless white guys who play for a lot of money and come off as being like pretentious and arrogant and whatever. The same held true for the, for, for the era of the past. The difference was the game wasn't mature. It was in its infancy, right? It was, it was barbaric and it was just a bunch of road gamblers and there was shit talking and everybody was very emotional and charged and there was a lot of just like berating one another and letting it all out there. That's how the allure of Helmuth came to be, right? Mm. Why is he not accepted as that person now? Why doesn't the audience want that any longer? Why do they hate Randall Emmett? Right? Randall is great for all of these games. Do you know how many lineups come together simply because he's willing to play? Like they don't understand. The people at home don't understand that like he's facilitating a need in the industry to even make these games run. Right. And like sure, he's flamboyant and he's boisterous and he's very loud and can be a bit of a drain. But that goes back to my point that the actual table talk itself never matters. It doesn't matter in any sport. You never get to hear the athletes on the field when they're competing. But right? isn't that the most interesting part? When they mic up the athletes and you hear the huddle and like you hear, that is very interesting to people. Peeling back the curtain is always nice. Yeah. And I, I think that there's room to uh, mix table talk and commentary, right? I think the World Series does a great job of it. You're not listening to the main event final table table talk all right. that often. Right. But they cue to it whenever it's necessary. Yes. The whole point I'm trying to get across is that if you want to start getting fringe people to care, you have to glamorize the dream. And we've distilled it down to like it not being worth that much. We're so flippant about what people have accomplished and achieved. And a lot of that is because the, the evolution of the game and so much has changed, right? Negreanu made 48 million in this game or whatever his number is by playing like 1Ks mm -hmm. and up to 10Ks, right? He probably didn't play his first 100K buy-in until less than a decade ago. A lot of these guys went from zero to 50 million playing strictly 50Ks and 100Ks. And it's like all this big money just changes hands now in a way that like the everyman just can't care. Mm -hmm. The reason why everybody points to the era of old as what's so desirable and what should be mimicked now is because then we didn't know shit. And the allure was monstrous, right? You got sold a dream. The idea was you're sitting there watching six regular Joes who had chosen this really mysterious lifestyle of being a professional gambler. And you wanted to know how they could possibly sleep at night doing this. And you got a little bit of insight into that whenever you got to watch them interact at a table, right? Now it's just a profession. 
it's a business. Yeah. Right? It's a business that lacks corporation dollars and thus we get left in the dust and are relatively regarded as irrelevant. I think, when do you think that began? I, I think it began... Post Black the, Friday. Well, there was this... There was this. I remember a while ago when uh, Faraz Jaka like, wrote, either wrote an article or there was like an interview, potentially on TV or, or a major article, where he said, yeah, we're just not... like." It's all not true. It's simply when you win first place, that's not what you won. Like you have a piece of that and part of that you are, are is pieced out and you might even be in makeup and it's not what you see when they bring out all that money. That's not all you're keeping. Right. In a way, you've been part of like the, the, the ones that say, yeah, you know, transparency is really important, but did transparency kill the dream? I don't think it killed the dream. But I think it's uh, the, the problem is there hasn't been transparency with education, mm -hmm. right? And this is a whole nother conversation that I don't want to get into today. I think we can save it for a later podcast. But uh, a lot of the responses that I was getting on Twitter is, why don't you put a game on TV where everybody is at stake so I can actually care? And mm -hmm. it's like, well, that's just an ignorant comment, right? How many, my response was, how many people do you think have become decamillionaires through poker? How many do you think have become centi millionaires through poker right mm. so how many 10 how many people are worth 10 million plus through poker how many people are worth 100 million plus through poker yeah less than I, I, less than, than less than 10 for the for the millionaires i think for the decamillionaires. millionaires yeah. yeah and and maybe like less than three for for the latter uh it, it might be more because of outside business like things like uh, yeah, yeah, online poker through poker right. through poker playing i think well, whatever that, through yeah. any poker ventures right? right i don't care the number is so small and skewed that it just doesn't matter, but the stakes keep getting higher and higher and higher, yeah. right? So why would you ever in a million years look down at somebody for taking on a business venture and selling equity so that they could do so without risk of ruin? This is the only business where I think that that is frowned upon. Not frowned upon, but frowned upon by people in the outside. It's just misunderstood. Yeah. It's completely misunderstood, right? Like somehow there's some level of pride and attachment to a guy sitting with his last dollar. Well, I think it's because they still view it as gambling. Like right. if if you were to like if you were playing blackjack with someone else's money, they'll be like, "What are you doing?" You yeah, know, like that, that's kind know. of fair, a little bit. But even still, the irony is the the level of I guess disconnect when it's all said and done, because they'll just contradict themselves. They'll say like, "Get me a lineup of people who aren't completely staked." So I can find it interesting. There's real pain and blood going on, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, now you have six people sitting down and they have their bankrolls on the table. Every time one of them goes broke, they're now poked fun at and, and told that they're an idiot for putting themselves in that position. Right, and everything. Of course. It's like there's no middle ground. There's, yeah. there's no way to make people happy. If we want to watch games where people aren't staked, you're going to start seeing televised 510 games and sure. $500 tournament buy-ins. For sure. It's not sure. going to happen. The everyman's not going to care because now there's no dream to that. Right? What's the upside? Yeah. Well, it's an amount of money that they can comprehend. But I, I think even like going back to when there was a dream in, in last decade, like it was pretty obvious that the mouth was staked. The right. mouth was staked in all these big games, right. you know? Um, Daniel Negrano began staked by sure. Jennifer Harmon. Like everyone at some point didn't was not flush and they got flushed through opportunities that were afforded to them by their skill set. Right. The mystery and allure was broken post Black Friday whenever crushers just started coming out of the woodworks and having to really grind it out for a living 
because they were no longer mysteriously anonymous online, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Also, we lost all of the, the TV dollars. We lost all of the sponsorship, all the advertisements, et cetera, right? So now this just becomes a, a simple uh, matter of economics, right? It's just a basic game where the best are going to make some money and the rest are going to try to or survive in the ecosystem, right? Yeah. It's thriving versus surviving. Once that occurred, what, what issue lies is now there's no mystery in it, right? It's a business. It's, it's a simple business. It's a profession. The people who are doing it are doing it with some sort of skill edge. The, the issue is that nobody ever burst the bubble of the mystery and allure of where all the money was coming from. Right. Nobody ever spoke out transparently about the fact that you need X amount of buy-ins to sit in stakes of Y, right? You need to be worth a certain amount of money to play a $100,000 buy-in tournament. And the fact of the matter is these guys aren't firing off 25, 30, 50% of their money anymore, mm -hmm. right? That's just not a thing. And, you know, everybody curates these lists of, of days of yore where it's like, this was the golden age of poker. I just want to see Brad Booth and Sammy Farha and all these guys sitting at a table again. It's like, hey, man, I'm here to poke, to poke holes in this, right? I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but all of your heroes are broke and they're no longer playing the game. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely true. Um, it, yeah, but, you know, I feel there's, there's a little bit of sadness to that. Yeah. Like, it's just like these people were icons of the game. Right, and they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be you know, dismissed of what they did and contributed. Uh, they shouldn't be frowned upon for not cutting the mustard any longer, right? Cutting the mustard? Yeah. Here we, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Go ahead. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, they're not up to snuff. <laughs> Another word? Another one? Oh, they're no longer able to sustain. Fair. Right? Okay. So let's talk a little bit about strategy. So two things. I definitely want to talk about uh, what you felt was, you know, you, you lost a little bit on yesterday's stream on PokerGo. A little what, bit? Well, you know, I'm trying to be nice. We're back, baby. It's been a long time. Back in the cash streets, playing a little 2550. Poker after dark. I'm hoping the game's gonna be a little bit bigger, but I'm not real sure. Um, let's see if we can get some straddles brewing, get mad at South stuck maybe. Uh, should be fun. What do I see? There's a whole damn army thinking that they're gonna harm me, saying that I'll never get free. Oh, I got troubles. They won't let me. Man, I don't want to sound entitled, but actually. I'm struggling right now with some serious entitlement. Session did not go well. I won a thousand. I was up 17, 18,000, something like that. Just, uh, just a lot of annoying spots. Rest up, hit the gym, and just do better. But now another thing come and watch my enemies get destroyed oh i got troubles 
Alright, about to head into the Pokemon Go Studios for day two of World Series Hangover. Six feet deep where the sun don't shine, thinking that they've won. It's only just be gone when I go into the ground. Fuck! I just lost 27,000 in a game where a man was blind straddling five of the eight positions. Never playing on TV again. Counted out, left for dead. Wanted with a bounty on my head. But somehow, someway, I'm gonna keep moving along. It was a big game. It was twenty-five fifty with like two hundred dollars straddles every now and then. Um, what do you think was the every hand? Now and then, if you have a hand that you could take back, which one would it be? I mean, the two biggest pots I played, I wouldn't have done anything differently. I, I, that's not entirely true. The king jack hand against Cantu, I may have three bet the flop, just knowing that him and Randall's ranges are pretty dusty. Do you want to re recap the, the hand? Sure. So, uh, folded to me in the small blind. Cantu had a 200 sleeper straddle on. I limped. Randall completed from the big blind, and Cantu checked. Came king seven, three, two clubs. Mm -hmm. Or, sorry, jack seven, three, two clubs. Yes. The jack was a non club. I have no club in my hand. I bet 406. Uh, Randall makes it 1400, and Cantu cold calls. Now, we had played for 12 hours. Cantu does not have a strong cold call range there. He right. just doesn't have the patience or discipline to cold call a set or two pair. And also, he shouldn't, right? He just shouldn't because he's getting so much action mm -hmm. when he's aggressive that he's, he's benefited by right. making it 5,000 with Correct. sets and two pairs and you know, also pressing a lot of equity with like eight, nine of clubs or jack X of clubs, right? Yeah. So when he cold calls there, he just has a lot of trash. Yeah. Um, and, you know, effectively, like, I just didn't want to play a 50K pot where I should be happy to play a 50K pot. Right. You know, it's like we started the hand effectively 100 blinds deep. And, yeah, this is really light. And, you know, uh, anybody who's analyzing this from a theory optimal standpoint would be like, how are you ever even continuing with this hand? It's crazy. But it's like, okay, let's throw the constructs <laughs> right, of right. theory out the window it's, for a minute it's and understand and what we're dealing with, right? right. right? These aren't tight ranges. Right. This isn't a standard flop raise range. Right. This isn't a standard flop cold call range if there even is one. Yeah, right? for what it's worth, it was 9-6 red and 7-deuce offsuit. Right. <laughs> it like right. It's just like I, I'm, I'm playing against absolute trash. In one essence, it's like you want to keep it in. You don't mind having those hands continue. Mm -hmm. They're drawing nearly dead. But the issue is the reverse applied odds of it all. I don't know if I'm getting more streets from Cantu with seven deuce off. I don't know that he's necessarily going to turn his hand into a bluff. I do know that when he makes a seven or a deuce that's a non-club, I'm yeah, going to pay. You're going to pay. Yeah. And I also know that I'm susceptible to being bluffed on a club. So it's just like maybe I should just be making it 5,500 there and uh, dealing with the fact that I might get back jammed on by a pretty trashy hand sometimes. Yeah. So in my opinion, the only hand that I really didn't... Uh, 
like, I guess, was there was a hand where like you open jacks, get called in two spots. I believe it was Randall and Marquez. Uh, flop comes 6-6-X, six, 6-6-Deuce, six, six, I believe. Three. Yeah, 6-6-3. Six, six, you check, which I do like check, uh, uh, you know, a, a fair amount of the frequency there. Randall bets. It goes call, call, by call, and then we overcall. What? Good. You're, I, you're not well, going to Because you already started with, like, I like a check here, some frequency. It's like, no, I'm you checking because check. it's Randall and Marquez. I'm with you, man. No, but that's really critical. It's like, I'm not <laughs> trying to balance here. I understand, I'm not man. checking, like, <laughs> you know, 6X and, like, all that. I'm checking because I'm playing against two guys who absolutely have zero comprehension of strategy and just like to bet. I'm with you, man. I'm just trying to make a show. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm just saying, like, let's not throw this in the solver. Okay. 6-6 six, six, deuce. Uh, check, bet, call, we overcall. Turn was five. five. Bring back Check, bet, call, overcall again. River breaks off. and Where's the king? Yeah. Uh, which is irrelevant to yeah, the board, yeah. pretty much. Uh, check, check. Marquez now bets, and I believe it was 7,000. Yep. And the only reason I think here is that because it's pretty hard for Marquez to find bluffs here. Uh, and he's been funneled by a range of Randall betting twice. So it's like he needs to be betting a five or a bluff. And it's, I guess it's pretty hard to find. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess so. I, I don't think that he's... Beyond calling flop with hands like seven eight, mm. uh, ace highs, like don't get me wrong, that means that he's gonna have a king here some of the time. But you, the the backdoor hearts are really critical because it's like now he's just gonna be pot stuck with a lot of his floats. Like so, like what? So if he does like have seven, seven eight, eight of hearts, if yeah. he has any ace high hearts, yeah, yeah like he's just not folding these hands to a c bet from Randall. Mm -hmm. I don't think. Yeah, that makes sense. And he probably assumes that I'm done with the hand, mm -hmm. so he's gonna be calling pretty freely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the river is, like, close. Yeah. Um, but, again, it's just, like, what are you supposed to do? It's, like, he's going to show you six sometimes. He's not going to show you six all the time. Yeah. What if he yeah. just has nines and thinks that he's getting value? I mean, it'd be crazy. It'd be ambitious, yeah. But he also raised flop on ace-10-deuce with eight-five of diamonds. That is true. That is definitely true. Facing a bet and a call. That is true. I mean, he's definitely playing unorthodox uh, out there for sure. So, while you were playing, I was on Slack... Uh, kind of just pretty much writing out the hand histories, giving my thoughts of like what's going on. You know, people were interacting and stuff. And then one of the things that was said was that when I'm on TV, you're going to do the same thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. You just, you got to get on TV, bro. I've been on TV and you haven't watched any of my hands. You were on Facebook. Facebook is bigger than PokerGo. Okay, <laughs> let's just make that clear. Facebook is huge. All right, it's a billion dollar company. PokerGo is aspiring to be Facebook. <laughs> okay, so, uh, you know, I reviewed all your hands. And then one of the things that, I, another thing I did this week was I did a webinar, which I reviewed all the hands I played on the Monster Stack. Yeah. And it was, it was exhausting, man. It was like, <laughs> it was like almost 70 hands. Yeah. Reviewing all the thought processes and it was just wild, man. It was, it was, it was really fun but it was another thing that reminded me that you've never reviewed all my hands <laughs> why would you want me to review all your hands i'm just saying i'm reviewing all of my I own hate hands. hand history you coached me for two years and i realized that you've never reviewed all my hands that's why on day one i said no hand histories <laughs> so that was that was so wait what made you what made you decide to write down all of your hands in the tournament because i think that 
you know, one, I'm not a tournament player by nature. Like, it's one of those things where I've, I've built my prowess in cash games. So I'm always a little self-conscious about my, like, my just, like, pure ability in tournaments of identifying spots. Yeah. So, like, when I write down all the hands, it helps me just say, when I review it later, I'm like, oh, okay, I could have I done this, you know, or I could have done that. And in, in tournaments, like, the things I write down are not only, like, hands I played or just, just like, spots I passed on. Right. And I think that's, like, equally as important because, I, in my opinion, I think tournaments are, like, just, like, kind of barbaric. Like, it's not, it's not, like, constructed ranges. It's more about, like, spot identification and your talent pushing you through yeah. uh, to, to the end game. How much of your decisions after the fact, like when you're examining these hand histories, how much is it you like finding spots where you feel like you could exert more control mm. versus like actually feeling like you found a higher EV line? Uh, a lot of it is just, it's weird. Cause like, so when I, when I, uh, cause we do this with bust hands. For right? sure. For sure. When we bust, we then immediately look for what would be a higher EV line, AKA the line that doesn't allow us to bust. Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. I think like what I did was really beneficial because it was more of a like an interesting conversation with the people that were that were listening because I didn't say like I played every hand right. No, of a course, lot of the of times I'm saying like I'm reviewing the hand and I'm like I could have done this a lot better or or things like that and we're and we're having a conversation and then so I wanted to bring a hand to you that you know, like people were were interested about. So okay. like. Just, uh, sorry, uh, just to touch on that before we, we move on to the hand history. I, I think what's really important mm -hmm. uh, in that framework, especially from a teacher standpoint, but even if you're trying to like just dissect yourself and, and everybody listening can like kind of run themselves through this metric, I think what's very critical is to recognize that in, in most instances, there's no such thing as correct and incorrect. For sure. Right? Like, Truly what we're, what we're talking about when we're dissecting hand histories, and this is why I've always had such a problem doing it, because I think that they become like very anecdotal in nature. I think they become very emotional to fight for one side versus the other. Yeah, yeah. The fact is that we're just operating on a spectrum of EV. For sure. And yeah, the worst decision you can make will yield the, the, the greatest negative EV response. Mm -hmm. And the best, most optimal decision you can make will yield the highest plus EV response. Yeah. But just recognize that like both of those points on the spectrum are incredibly exploitative, right? Right. So the greatest negative EV response you could you could yield would be going all in and then mucking your hand. Yeah. Right. And that's exploitative. Yeah. That's that's there's no solve for that. Right. right? It, it's it's the most exploitative thing you can do in a negative way. Same holds true in a positive way. Where the most exploitative thing you could do would be to look at your neighbor's hand, and then find the maximum amount that you can extract from it, yielding him to never win the pot. Right, and that's always been like what people said, like, oh, if you turn your hand over, if you turn your opponent's hand over, right. what would be the optimal response, right? I think like Skolansky Skolansky wrote that, yeah. yeah. So, so understanding that those are the two bookends from which we're going to be making decisions and then recognizing that like because you chose this path doesn't necessarily mean that it was improper or incorrect, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's why I think like hand histories are truly a tool to just dissect what you were thinking in that moment. It's way more critical to me as an onlooker, either trying to learn from you or trying to help you learn, to get into the mindset of, well, what led you to that decision that then took you down the path? And is that line of thinking actually best or is there room to maneuver? 
Absolutely. I always, I always agreed that it's a play is never right or wrong. It's just to what degree are you right or what degree are you wrong? And there could be two plays that are right, so to speak. It's just certainly just uh, like where does it fall in, in in the well, spectrum. Well, even so, so I, but yeah, I, those terms are just are, the terms are really bad, be, right. or not bad, but they're they're difficult to utilize, right? Because like take take Cantu for instance in that environment over mm. the last two days, right? He's making infinite wrong decisions, right? He's voluntarily putting in money for free, et cetera, et cetera, and the expectation should be negative in uh, in a theoretical vacuum, but he's not in a theoretical vacuum. He's in a live environment where people are making very huge uh, under under or over adjustments to uh, to him effectively just like punting off money, right? Yeah. And what he's doing is he's allowing himself to VPIP higher than anybody else in the game. And in an environment where he thinks that the mistakes are being compounded later in the hand, he's actually recouping all of that EV and then some, right? So all that's really happening is we're entering a strategic framework through some decision. And it starts with his decision to straddle and then yeah. it, 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 it carries forward with everybody's response to that straddle. Right, and now we're in a totally different strategic layer than any sort of vacuum that we've studied. From that point forward, now there's going to be margins of error with every decision thereafter, and I believe that he won over those two days because he got to collect all that margin of error. So let's let's talk about this hand. So the the stack size. Just understand that we're in a deep stack size, right? So under the gun, one is going to open. It's going to fold around to us with pocket eights. Okay. The big blind is going to fold. We're going to go heads up. Where, uh, where are you at in position? I'm in the small blind. Okay. Right. So it's under the gun one versus small blind, and we're at significant depth, over 100 blinds. Okay. Flop comes nine, king, nine, eight, mm -hmm. with a rainbow board. Okay. Right? It goes check, half pot, mm -hmm. call. Okay. Turn nine. Okay. Now, the discussion is here. Should we be leading a big size for with a polar like representing a polar range, or should we be leading small and uh, getting our opponent to the river and then representing a polarized range? So what I did in game was I led small. Yep. He called. Yep. And then on the river I overbet. Yep. And then he called. Yeah. And I win. Of yep. course. Now the discussion there was should we lead uh, big? And then lead big again. Right. Um, and then I, I gave it thought in real time. And I'm like, I guess it depends, right? If, like, for us to lead big, we can't lead all of our hands. And we would only be leading. Well, it depends between, how. Are right. we talking in a vacuum? Or are we talking about ex explicit to this example? Because it doesn't depend in a vacuum. Your line is best. Okay. Um, you're just going to get to lead a lot of hands there. And you're going to yield a bunch of folds. So you're going to get to lead jack 10. You're yes. going to get to lead queen jack. Uh, right. The three hands that are, we're leading are, and we, it would only be in the suited variety, would be jack 10, queen 10, and queen jack. Uh, I think you would also lead 7-6 if you possess it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, um, makes sense. And I think that you could also lead like some ace-high floats. So right. if you have like ace-10 with a backdoor, right. this is a good spot, especially if you're unblocking the nine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's that was the that was the discussion. And, you know, I, I, I didn't say that my play was best or anything. I just said... I usually play this way because I want to lead a lot of hands. And mm -hmm. if I lead big, I can't lead a lot of hands. Right. Um, so I thought that was generally the kind of the discussion. But it's always nice to hear like our students kind of like going back and forth on yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that there can be an argument for leading larger if you think that 
once he bet like if you think his half pot bet on the flop is significant strength mm -hmm. now i think that you can like over rep the nine and just start to pull out but you have to understand like your opponent type because there's gonna be two types of opponents that you're up against there's gonna be one who is trying to think theoretically and recognize that you're not supposed to bet big there and now think that you're making errors and be heavily weighted towards jack 10 queen jack queen 10 which your range naturally already is anyway, mm -hmm. right? Um, in which case now he's going to over-respond. So that's the guy that I would want to, want to over-bet against. The rest of the field, who's generally pretty weak and is going to see a big bet on a nine as an oh-shit moment, right. where now their entire range is at best a bluff catcher, mm -hmm. is maybe going to continue through that big bet, but going to naturally overfold the river at a pretty high frequency. So now I think the cadence changes where like you might go like 75% pot against that guy and then like 66 or 50% pot on river just to ensure a call where against the theoretical mind, I think you want to go like pot 2x pot. So I want to talk about like two more topics. So one, this is it's strategic, but not so much so mechanical. I just kind of want to have this conversation before we wrap. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, at least for me, leaving the summer and started, I started playing cash games at the win 510 and it's been going really well. And, you know, some of the hand histories I've fired into the, the group chat are some like pretty out of line shit, right? It's pretty, it's pretty out of line stuff, but I don't, can't explain, like it's working, right? And I can't explain mechanically why it's working. I can't explain theoretically why it's working but it's just working and i feel like over the last year or so there's been times where i'm like trying to explain mechanically why things work and my win rate's not as high as i know it could be and then now i'm just like i just i just know like i've been playing poker for 10 years i've seen this line i have muscle memory or, or mental memory of this situation and i know if i press this button it works mm -hmm. Is that still an argument in 2019? Yeah, for sure, man. Like, this is the thing. We all got so bogged down by the game working towards a solve and wanting to mimic what we see on TV when it comes to the high rollers and, you know, that community. The reason why they all play so similarly and so theoretically sound is because they have to. They're all studying the exact same material. They're all in the exact same environment over and over and over and over repeatedly, right? The EV differential between a Bonomo, a Sam Greenwood, mm. and a litany of other guys is marginal, right? right. They're barely winning against one another. Uh, it, it's probably pretty close to neutral. But there's enough dead money in the, in the prize pool where they get to chop up all of that EV. And then they swap a lot and right, piece right. each other out, whatever the case may be. They all have exposure across the board and they do what they need to do to uh, earn a pretty good living. Yeah. Now, effectively, you're just kind of looking for your heaters mm -hmm. and everybody kind of gets their turn. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've seen that it's Bonomo. Now it was Fedor in the past. It was Seidel before him. Coleman. Yeah. Coleman. Yeah. We'll see a continually repetitive process of this. That's not to say that Fedor and Seidel and Bonomo will fall off. It's just that they'll regress to the mean, um, in the real world where everybody's slinging it and the EVs are far differentiating between right. the best in the game and the next best, yeah. And then the worst. For sure. Um, 
your environment matters as much or more than your theoretically sound knowledge, right? And a lot of times the theory can become distracting or white noise, yes. right? Uh, yesterday's a great example. Like Sam Silverall definitely approached that game in a very theoretically sound, sound way. He never got out of line pre. He played very strict to his ranges and he lost small. Mm-hmm. And yeah, long run, he's going to win a lot of money in that game. Of course. But he's not going to win the most that he could because he's unwilling to give any action to these guys who are just absolutely giving it away. Uh, there's there's an, insertion, an insertion factor that allows you, even if you're giving up some EV to the, to the collective, you're recouping a lot of that EV just simply by being able to play hands against somebody where the, the, the disparity between the two of you is so great that you stand to make all of the money directly from that person. Right. Mm-hmm. So effectively, like we talk about this in the academy, when a drunk guy sits in the game, I always say that like I'm always more prone to getting that guy's money than anyone else at the table. Right. Everybody exactly. else at the table is waiting to have it and have him go off against them. I instead want to challenge him, play a very wide range myself, be willing to sacrifice easy spots for more challenging ones, but also allow myself to just stack him at a much greater rate. Right, Because I trust that I'm going to be correct in those situations. And I think that's a lot of what you're speaking to. It's this idea of clairvoyance. When you're against weaker competition, their strategy becomes a lot more transparent. When that's the case, you need to act as exploitatively as possible. And so it it goes back to the initial thing that I was saying where it's like none of us are acting in an optimal way to begin with. Nobody. Literally nobody. Not even what you see on TV in in this high roller field, right? They're all just playing... A, a comparably optimal strategy, right? So wherever they fall on the exploitative EV range, they're all pretty much dead right. in the same spot. Yeah, I and the environment then adapts and becomes pretty unified, right? That doesn't really happen in live cash. It doesn't happen in open field events where there are thousands of runners. You have a lot of wild cards that will impact your environment. So how you best shift yourself up to the plus plus EV exploitative play? will dictate how much your bottom line is able to grow. And I think that that's why you take a lot of these plays that like from a theory standpoint are just tragic, right? Because like it's going to require your opponent folding top of range for this to work. Or it's going to require your opponent calling with bottom of range to justify this massive overbet in a spot where like he just shouldn't have calls and and things like that. But those mistakes occur Mm -hmm. often, often. Because the doubt and the self-trust is greater or sorry, the doubt is greater and the self-trust is is lacking in the vast majority of your opponents. And that's where your experience and skill set really comes into play. You have Face ID on your phone? Yeah. It's groundbreaking. Is it? I don't use it. Dude, it's fucking great. Unlocked. I use the fingerprint. It's faster. I'm afraid all these people got all the stuff we know, man. They do. They, 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 they got my face. They got your fingerprint. Mm-hmm. They got what you looked up. Yep. They got everything. And now there's a, you look like a baby. You look like an old man. This is like, Google, man. You want, you want Google. You got Google. I think that's Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> but, all right. Last talking point before we wrap. I did cryotherapy. Have you ever done that? No. Okay. You go, it's like a minus 170 Fahrenheit yeah. in there. Yeah. And you go in. I did six minutes. It was really cold. It was like in a, it's called Life Cube or whatever. Okay. Um, but it's just a cube. That's like the new one. The, the original one was like the nitrogen or whatever coming out from the bottom. This one's just like an ice cube. Like you're in a, in a refrigerator, freezer, whatever. And I feel like you and I are like kind of big on this stuff. Like we do the sauna. There's a sauna at the house. And now that, you know, I did the cryotherapy. 
why is it good? Why, why do we need these kind of stressors, etc.? I just want to wrap outside of poker. We talked a lot about poker. Don't worry. There's some people I, I, I that got, tune in for other things. I got, I got a little something to drop in your lap. Um, I, I mean, here's the thing. It's like biohacking is uh, it's a new thing, and the science is relatively new, and there's a lot that we're just discovering. Mm-hmm. The idea of external stressors being anti-carcinogenic, anti-inflammatory, or, or inflammation reducers, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, the science behind it is becoming relatively sound. And it's no shock, right? Like if we go back to our roots, we were hunters and gatherers. We were constantly under physical stress, uh, you know, external stresses by the by the elements, be it heat or rain or or whatever, right? right. So it's like, you know, uh, I'm not trying to say that we need to live an archaic life, but I'm just saying our bodies were built and have evolved into um, this capacity to kind of like really regulate themselves. Yeah. And in today's society where we literally have everything at our fingertips and we are relatively complacent and even to the point of stagnant and lazy, um, our body is kind of devolving and it's getting out of the, the idea. It's, it's basically giving up. And that's why in a lot of ways you see this rampant rise in cancer because cancer cells are very aggressive and, they form from environmental factors in a lot of ways. And we put a lot of toxins into ourselves without doing the proper things to, to help our body jumpstart the, the process to alleviate all of that. Yeah, the crazy thing, like when I was listening to a couple of podcasts, is like everything you eat has like a direct like unlocking or locking in your DNA. Like immediately, like right at that point of contact. Mm-hmm. That's crazy because like you don't think about that. Right. Like... The second you eat one thing, it either like unlocked or locked a certain gene that, that in your body. Like what? Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, I don't really fully comprehend how that that works. Like I get it, our bodies are smart beyond our comprehension. Right. Um, and I'm not shocked. Like the idea of like eating a Twizzler, you know, creating some sort of long lasting damage makes sense. Yeah. You know, you're putting you're putting something that's foreign into your body and and, and not natural. I hated Twizzlers. I, I felt I always felt like they were like. They, they didn't have enough sugar at the time. Oh, hmm. those, those are my road trip go-tos. <laughs> uh, Speaking of road trip, yeah, you are about to leave us for an undetermined amount of time. I can't wait, man. I'm not <laughs> going to lie. I am going home to see my family. They haven't seen me in months. I'm going to Dominican Republic with them as well. It is a great life. I, we are so blessed. Let me tell you, man. <laughs> Like, it's crazy. Like, I, I sometimes think about this. I'm like, listen, my mom moved here from Dominican Republic. I'm betting $1,000 on the turn because the queen of clubs came. Mm. That is a nice life. Yeah. Like, I mean, I tell her all the time, like, you know, I bet $1,000, mom, on the turn because <laughs> the queen came. <laughs> like, I know you don't know what that means, but that is nuts. That is like our, like, that used to be our rent. Yeah. Like, now we live a little bit nicer house. But like, before, that was a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just great. Uh. I'm happy to go. I always have a good time. So for why, <laughs> episode number nine, I will be gone for some time. If you miss me, tweet me, DM me, Slack me. Don't show up at DR. I will not acknowledge you. Are your... you going to take the flag with you? I was told that the flag will be taken care of. I don't know what that means exactly, <laughs> but the comment section has been on fire about the flag. So Looks we'll a little see. wrinkled. Listen, man, 
you guys don't this is the ego like the pride the pride of the country and all these things the flag can't be wrinkled anymore okay i try to let it go mm. we'll see what happens all right <laughs> you got it some time to take care of it all right well software white episode number nine if you like what you saw please subscribe if you don't like what you saw please subscribe or comment below tell us you know Christian, I really appreciate that you wore a different shirt this week. Uh, you know, it, all these things, very nice things. I really appreciate it. Some guy didn't like the way that, like, I, I, I didn't brush up my beard or whatever. I told him to go fuck himself. My, <laughs> uh, my wife likes it that way. I don't even have a wife. I was just talking shit. You know, <laughs> don't be trying to come at my ego, dog. Anyway, with that said, we're out. Oh, man.